Well, throughout the Bible, God's people are likened to growing, thriving trees with strong roots and green leaves and many branches and much fruit, and which are able to withstand the most adverse conditions, whether that be drought or wind or rain or floods or cold or heat. Trees in the scriptures symbolize the kind of strength and stability God intends us to have as we grow and as we mature and as we flourish spiritually, which enables us to endure all sorts of harsh circumstances and live long, fruitful, productive lives that bring great glory to God. Look with me just for a moment at some of these references to trees in the scriptures and how they relate to us as believers. Um, Psalm 1 is the first place my mind goes to. Uh, Psalm 1, verse 1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a, what? Tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. Psalm 92, verse 12, the righteous man will flourish like the palm tree. He will grow like a cedar in Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will stand, they will, excuse me, they will still yield fruit in old age, they shall be full of sap and very green. Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord, for he will be like a, what? A tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in the year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And then lastly, Isaiah chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 61, the famous words of the prophet Isaiah uh, prophesying about the uh, exaltation of the nation of Israel in the end times and the restoration of Israel in the end times. Isaiah 61, verse 1, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. And note this, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I save that passage for last because the content of Paul's prayer in Philippians chapter 1 pretty much parallels the words of the prophet Isaiah, when he said, they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's essentially what Paul was praying here in Philippians chapter 1, that he prayed that they would grow, prayed that these believers in Philippi would grow and, and flourish like an oak tree that had been sovereignly planted by God for the purpose of bringing him glory. 
We've all seen that, that old majestic oak standing alongside the banks of a stream or a river with its sprawling branches, oftentimes draped with Spanish moss. It's a beautiful, awe-inspiring picture, which brings to mind images of southern weddings and historical landmarks. But whether you realize it or not, whenever you look at one of those old majestic oaks, it really serves as a, as a beautiful, powerful picture or image of what our lives should be like as Christians. We should be oaks of righteousness, as the scripture says. Now, in the same way, it takes many years for a tiny acorn to, to grow and develop into this stately oak tree, so it takes many years for uh, a baby Christian to grow and develop into a strong, mature believer that is characterized by a holy and righteous life. All of us here this morning who are in Christ are at our different, different levels, different stages of what we call the sanctification process, the, the process of spiritual growth by which we are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. We're becoming set apart or made more holy before the Lord. And we know this process will be completed the moment that Christ returns or calls us home and we see him face to face. We will be glorified. And Paul was absolutely convinced that the believers in Philippi were in the midst of this transformation process. We learned that last week in verse 6. He says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And so, when it came time for him to pray for the Philippian church, he prayed very specifically for them that they would continue to grow and mature in preparation for that glorious day when they would stand before Christ and give an account of their lives. He says here in verse 9, and this I pray. He had already told him that he prayed for them back in verse 4, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you. Now he tells them exactly what he prayed for. And I want to point out here before we look in in depth at this prayer, uh, that, that the format that Paul followed here in this letter to the Philippian church was typical of the letters he wrote to other churches. He would start by introducing himself, blessing them, expressing why he was so thankful for them, and then telling them specifically what he was praying for them. And notice Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. Listen to his, the opening lines of his letter to the church in Colossae. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9, 
For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That's a mouthful. Um, But that's how Paul prayed for the people that were so beloved to him. How about 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11? To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly in Philemon, Philemon Uh, verse 4, I thank my God always making mention of you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. I read those passages because I think they're very instructive for us. We, We get a glimpse into the consistency and the content of Paul's prayers, which, by the way, I'm sure you noticed, were singularly focused on the spiritual growth and progress of the people that he loved. Now, I'm sure Paul prayed for the physical needs of believers, but the main focus of his recorded prayers was their spiritual needs. And I think if we followed Paul's example more, it would radically affect how many of us pray for ourselves and for others and and how we ask others to pray for us. Most of the time we pray for or we seek prayer for our physical needs, things like our health or our finances or our relationships or our jobs or our grades or our tests or you fill in the blank. You, You know... You've been to a, a, a prayer meeting a time or two in your life, and, and I think too often church prayer meetings are dominated by requests and prayers for people in the hospital, people who are out of a job or in need of financial provision or in some failed relationship or in extreme cases, someone's distant relative's ingrown toenail. Um, now, obviously, I'm being facetious there, but it's okay. It's okay to pray for these kinds of things, these practical needs of life. But I think we need to learn to pray for and seek prayer for spiritual things in our lives and in the lives of others. When's the last time you heard somebody ask in a prayer meeting, hey, you know, would you pray for my pride? I'm just, I'm just really struggling with pride. And I'm just a prideful person. Would you pray that God would humble me? When's the last time you heard that kind of prayer? Or, you know, I'm really struggling with jealousy. Or I'm really struggling with materialism. And, you know, I'm really, I'm just, I'm I'm not strong spiritually right now. Would you pray that God would strengthen me spiritually? You don't normally hear those things in prayer meetings today. And so like Paul, we need to be most concerned about praying for our, our spiritual growth and the spiritual growth of others. And this prayer in this passage, is a prayer for spiritual growth. This is how we should pray for ourselves, and this is how we should pray for others. 
And how I want to want us to look at this this morning is that in these verses, Paul shared four prayer requests, four prayer requests, which are essential to our spiritual growth and maturity. And what I want us to notice this morning, and you'll see this as we go through this, that each of these requests is sequential. And what I mean by that is that each of them build on the foundation of the previous one. Just like when a farmer plants a, a seed and it, and it sprouts and it sends out shoots which begin to blossom and then produce fruit. It's all sequential. Uh, so God plants the seed of salvation in our hearts and it sprouts and it grows and results in a fruitful life. And so the progression of Paul's prayer here in verses 9 through 11 follows the progression of God's work in our lives to complete us and to perfect us. When love abounds in our lives, we develop discernment, which results in a life of integrity that is full of fruit, which ultimately brings glory and honor to God. That's the essence of what Paul is praying here for the church in Philippi. This is what the good work that God began in us, verse 6, looks like as he grows and matures us into the image of Christ. And so what are the four requests? He prays for abounding affection, for developing discernment, for increasing integrity and flourishing fruitfulness. Let's look at each one of these requests one at a time. First of all, abounding affection. He prays for abounding affection. He says, and this I pray, verse 9, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, which many of you are, you know that love is the premier virtue that is emphasized and commanded more than any other. Over and over and over and over, we see the word love being addressed. Let me just read for you some of the verses. Well, we know that love for God and love for others is the essence of Christianity. When Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was... He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your, who? Neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And so love for God and love for others is the essence, the hallmark of Christianity. God provided the ultimate demonstration of love through Christ. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. God commands us to follow his example by loving others. John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one laid down his life for his friends. Ephesians 5, 1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
And so we're commanded to follow God's example by loving others. Another comment is, that, is this that we see in Scripture, is love for fellow Christians is the mark of a true Christian. Love for fellow Christians is the mark of a true Christian. John 13, verse 34, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This was after Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he said, Now, guys, I want you to wash uh, not my feet, but wash each other's feet. Love one another. This will distinguish you as my disciples. And finally, when we don't have love or without love, nothing else we do matters. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove, remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. But now, faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is what? Is love. And so in light of the preeminence of love in the New Testament, it was only natural for Paul to begin his prayer for the Philippian believers by asking God, to cause them to abound or overflow with love for God and others. The idea here is a, is a river just overflowing its banks. The, the, the love is just gushing out of us. But like a river, love needs banks to keep it within the proper boundaries. Otherwise, love may pour out on the wrong kinds of things. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So there are certain things that we shouldn't love. And so we need some boundaries, if you will. We need some parameters. And so the two banks or boundaries that ensures our love is directed appropriately are, look at the text, real knowledge and all discernment. That that. That knowledge there is the word epignosis, which refers to a true knowledge of God. Not just a superficial knowledge, but a true, sincere, genuine knowledge of God that comes through a clear understanding of His Word. And so what Paul is praying here is that their love would be anchored in and directed by what they know the Bible teaches about God and about Jesus and about the Holy Spirit and about angels and man and sin and salvation and the church and the end times, you fill in the blank, right? Everything that the Bible teaches, that is what anchors and directs the love that God desires to have overflowing in our lives. How does this work? Well, the more we're in the word, the more our knowledge of God will increase and the more our knowledge of God increases, the more our love for him will increase. I mean, every new thing that you learn about God in His Word is a new reason for loving Him. And so the, the more we know Him, the more we love Him. And that's why we study the Bible so much around here. Um, why we preach on Sunday mornings and why we have the 
Bible taught in our children's ministry, our student ministries, our men's ministries, our women's ministries, and in our small groups. That's why we encourage you to have a, a personal quiet time where you spend time in God's Word every day and to have family devotions together um, as often as possible. It's all so you abound more and more, not in knowledge of God, but love for God. Paul said it best to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.5. He said the goal of our instruction is not more information or a big head or that we know more than everyone else. No, the goal of our instruction is what? Love. That's the goal of our instruction. And so the knowledge that we are gaining from God's word as we study his word, it enables us to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. The Bible is very clear about what and who we should love and what and who we should not love. And, and some Christians, you might think they don't understand that because they just love everyone and everything. Well, if the truth were be known, it's really they just want everybody to love them. So they won't stand up to anything or anyone because they, they just want everybody to like them. So I think some Christians are very loving, but they're very undiscerning in their love. Their love is blind. And that they'll listen to any preacher or read any author or donate to any ministry or cause. And what, what Paul is praying here is that the Philippian believers and us would demonstrate discernment when it comes to our love, that we would be able to tell the difference between a good preacher and a bad preacher, a good book and a bad book, a good ministry and a bad ministry, and so on and so on. And at the end of the day, love is not an emotional, sentimental thing, it must be wise, it must be intelligent, it must be perceptive, it must be selective as we seek to practically apply our knowledge of God's word to a myriad of circumstances and decisions in life. And so the first thing that Paul prays for here is abounding affection or abounding love, which leads to this very naturally into his second request. And again, you can see how these, through the prepositions that are uh, used here uh, and the connecting words uh, in these verses, they just, one of these prayer requests just naturally flows into the next one. And so the second prayer request is that they would develop discernment, that they would develop discernment. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. So that you may approve the things that are excellent. So the second request here uh, takes this concept of this discernment really to a deeper level. He was praying here that the Christians in Philippi would not just be able to differentiate differenti- between good and evil and right and wrong, but between what was good and what was best. In fact, if you have a New International Version uh, translation, it says that, that they would be able to discern what is best. That word there, uh, approve, is a familiar word to some of you. It's the word dakamazo, which is the word that was used for the process of testing things, testing coins and, and medals to determine if they were counterfeit or testing political candidates to see if they were qualified to serve. And so this is the idea of, uh, of, of developing discernment, that the ability to test things, to determine if they're good or bad, right or wrong, or good and 
best. A couple of verses that you might uh, turn to with me uh, that talk about the critical nature of discernment. Why is it so important that we develop discernment as Christians? Romans 12, 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove or test, there's the word, what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, different degrees there of decisions that we need to make. Uh, how about 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 Paul exhorted the believers in Thessalonica. He said, examine everything carefully. Test everything. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. And so we are commanded to exercise discernment. And uh, in, in fact, if we lack discernment, it's just evidence that we're immature in our relationship with the Lord. Hebrews chapter 5 Verse 11, the writer was addressing uh, the, the, his reader's lack of discernment. He said this, concerning him, Melchizedek, we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. In other words, there's much more I'd like to teach you, but I don't think you can handle it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you've come to need milk and not solid food. In other words, you're still drinking out of a bottle. You can't uh, start eating solid food yet. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. Um, Interesting just to think about an infant and how they lack discernment, a little toddler crawling around, and he sees something on the floor. Whatever he sees, he immediately puts it in his mouth, right? And parents are often like, no, 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 don't put that in your mouth, right? Why? Because we would never, that's disgusting. We wouldn't do that, right? Or you're going to choke on that or whatever it was. They don't have discernment. And so as you grow up, you develop discernment. Verse 14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And so it takes practice, right? We're all developing discernment. And sometimes it's a trial and error thing. And and sometimes we mess up and we make wrong decisions. And we go, okay, you know what? Uh, That wasn't a good decision. Um, Next time I want to choose the better thing or the best thing. And so as we mature in Christ, our discernment will grow. Our, our ability to make wise choices in life will improve. Life is a series of choices, really. It's, that's all it is. And, and many of those choices are not that hard to make because they're simply a choice between right and wrong. It's just very black and white. The Bible is very clear. What is the right choice to make? What is the right decision to make? However, there are a number of what we would call gray areas which the Bible doesn't directly address as right or wrong. And when it comes to these kinds of decisions, it's much harder to decide between what is permissible and what is profitable. 1 Corinthians 6.12 talks about all things are permissible, but not all things are profitable, not all things edify. I think one of the ways that, that you know that you're growing as a Christian, is when you begin to choose not to do certain things that the Bible doesn't say you can't do, but you choose not to do them because you realize that while they may not be harmful, they're really not helpful either. They may fall into the category of not a sin, but maybe an encumbrance. Hebrews chapter 12, 1, 
the writer says, hey, lay aside the sin and the encumbrances. So there's sin and there's also things that aren't necessarily sin, but they just encumber you. They hinder you. They slow you down in your pursuit of Christ. I think you can be encouraged that you're maturing in your relationship with the Lord if you're becoming more sensitive to the convictions and or the temptations of your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so you don't want to do anything to offend them or cause them to stumble into sin. And so you say, you know, I'm just not going to do that. Or at least I'm not going to do that around them because I don't want to cause them to stumble. And so you're growing in discernment. You also know you're maturing in Christ when you begin to see your priorities changing and you're realizing what is truly important in life and you spend less time doing the less important things and more time investing in what really matters. You're making decisions between what is good and what is what? Best. What is best? And so Paul was praying that the believers in Philippi would develop discernment and get to the place where their decisions were not so much between what's right and wrong, but what is good and what is best. And see, some of us are still in the, we're still kind of just fighting those decisions between what's right and wrong. That's where your battle lies every day, between what's right and wrong. Others of us maybe have progressed to the point where we know what's right and wrong. That's not so much the issue. It's the issue, okay, what, how am I going to invest my life? What is the wisest thing I should be doing right now? Should I really be involved in this or be participating in this? Is it really what's best for me, for my family, for the church, for my unsafe friends? Um, that's the level that we want to get to where we're, we're faced with those kinds of decisions every day is between the good and the best. And so Paul prays for discernment to develop, but then notice how the third request just flows right out of the second request. He, he prays for increasing integrity. Verse 10, this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent. Here it is, in order. See, all these things are just kind of going along in a, in a flow here, a progression here. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. In order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And so Paul's third request here is that, that the Philippians would be people of integrity, both internally and externally. He was concerned about their motives, what motivated them internally to do what they did, and also their actions externally, what they were actually doing. And so he uses two words here, in order to be sincere and Blameless. The word sincere, we'll start there, literally meant to be tested by the sun. What a great image that is. In other words, when your life is examined by the light of Scripture, it is shown to be pure, unmixed, unadulterated. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the fact that in ancient times, pottery was a huge industry, obviously. And just like products today, the, the pottery back then varied in quality, and sometimes the pottery would, would, would crack, a pot or a vase that was being fired in the oven uh, as it went through there or was sitting in there, it would crack, which meant you had to throw it away because it was no good, it was useless. Well, not everyone felt that way. There was dishonest dealers who didn't want to lose money by just throwing 
you know, a, a perfectly good pot away. And so they would take that pot and they would fill the cracks with wax and sell them. And so it was not uncommon to go to a pottery bazaar, if you will, and see people taking these jars and these vases and holding them up to the sun because the sun would reveal if there was any cracks and you could see the wax in those cracks. In fact, fine pottery in those days was often marked on the bottom with the word sincera, sincera, which meant without wax. And so what is Paul praying here? He's praying that we would have lives that are without wax. Now, we know the scriptures liken us to clay pots, which hold the glory of God, and, and uh, I think we could all say we're cracked pots, not cracked pots, but cracked pots. I mean, let's face it, we all have sinful flaws in our lives, which we shouldn't try to cover up or hide. We need to be open and honest and transparent about our sins and our struggles and our battle with the flesh. We shouldn't be phony or fake. We need to be real. I mean, the opposite of being sincere is being a what? A hypocrite. Wanting people to think you're somebody that you're not. Rather than just being a kind of what you see is what you get kind of person. That's what Paul's praying for, that they would be sincere. He also prays that they would be blameless, blameless, which literally means to be without stumbling or offense or to be above reproach. In other words, there's nothing in your life that anybody could grab a hold of and and make an issue of. You're above reproach. Now, again, this doesn't mean that we're sinless or perfect, we all Sin, but a blameless person is one who admits it when they sin, they confess it when they sin, they confess their sin, they forsake their sin, they seek forgiveness from those they've wronged and they try to make restitution whenever possible. And it should be our prayer that we maintain a sincere and blameless life, that we have a clear conscience would be another way of saying it, and a right relationship with God and man. Paul modeled what he prayed. Acts chapter 24, verse 16. I love this verse. I do my best, Paul said, to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. In other words, I'm always seeking to do what's right in the eyes of God and what is right in the eyes of men. And that is not an easy thing to do. That is the challenge of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we've conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. I was simply saying, listen, God is my witness that, that I've sought to live a godly, sincere life in this world in front of the watching world and in front of you as well. 2 Corinthians 2.17, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, who we speak in Christ in the sight of God. In other words, I live 
in the very sight of God. I recognize, Paul's saying, I recognize the fact that, you know what, you may not be with me all the time. You, not, you might not be able to see everything I'm doing all the time, but guess what? I know God does. It's what R.C. Sproul kind of made famous, the, the quorum deo, living before the face of God. And when you, when you come to that place where you recognize God's omnipresence and his omniscience, you'll stop doing this when you're thinking about sinning. Because why would you do this when God's like right there? It's, it's really silly when you think about it, but it shows our immaturity. And so we, we need to learn to, to live in the, in the sight of God, that, that God sees and God knows. And so ultimately we are held accountable not by other people, but by our knowledge of God. And we take that very seriously. Notice he says that you would be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. This is a, the second of several references that Paul made in this letter to Christ's second coming. He already mentioned it in verse 6. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus, talking about the second coming of the Lord. And so when Christ returns, every one of us will stand before him and have the purity of our motives and the purity of our actions tested and will be rewarded accordingly. We see this in a number of places throughout God's word. In in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, if a man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as though through fire. I love in the next chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Verse 3, Paul says this, But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Paul knew he was being scrutinized by the believers in Corinth. And some false teachers were getting in their head and saying all sorts of mean things about Paul. And uh, he says, you know what? At the end of the day, I could care less that you're examining me. I don't even examine myself. He says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. Again, I have a clean conscience, clear conscience, yet I am not by this acquitted. Even so, this doesn't mean I'm not guilty. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 28, says this, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And so this is a, a sobering but joyous thing that we anticipate standing before the Lord someday, and it should motivate us to live holy and blameless lives. I appreciated what one commentator said at this point. He said, quote, our dearest sins, our ingrained habits, 
our failures in holiness must surely be challenged, deposed, and scorned in the light of the thought that the Lord we love is coming. Now, I think a simple question that we should ask ourselves whenever we're trying to decide whether or not we should do something or not, just ask yourself the question, would I be ashamed if Jesus came back while I was doing this? Would I be ashamed if Jesus came back when I was doing this? Would I be ashamed if Jesus came back and I was having this conversation with my spouse or my kids or if I was at this place or with these people or you fill in the blank. See, we need to learn to live in light of Christ's imminent return, realizing that he could come back at any moment and so we need to be ready for his return. A healthy view of the second coming of Christ is, is not just good theology, it's, it's very practical for pursuing holiness in our lives. And then lastly, number four, Paul prays for flourishing fruitfulness. Flourishing fruitfulness. Again, notice the progression here. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the praise, to the glory and the praise of God. That expression there, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, is probably best understood to mean the fruits which righteousness produces. The fruits which righteousness produces. In other words, uh, the evidence that we have been truly saved, that we've received Christ's imputed righteousness, that his righteousness has been transferred to us, is that we have practical righteousness. In other words, we have the right kind of attitudes and the right kind of actions in our lives or, or what the Bible refers to as fruit. 1 John 3, 7, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. In other words, don't, don't say you're a Christian if there's no evidence, there's no fruit in your life to prove that. So what are some of the fruits of righteousness that we should ask God to produce in our lives and the lives of others. If we're praying uh, like Paul, what should we pray for? We should pray that we would display the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are some of the fruits of righteousness. We should, we should also pray that, that we would Share the gospel with unbelievers. Did you realize that's the fruit of salvation, that you have a burden for the lost and a desire to share the gospel with the lost? Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of righteousness is a tree of life, and he who is wise wins souls. How about doing good works? Colossians 1.10 talks about bearing fruit in every good work. How about enduring God's discipline? Do you know that's a, an attribute or a fruit of righteousness? and evidence that you're truly saved, that you endure God's discipline as his child. Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful, what? Fruit of righteousness. How about being grateful? 
Now, that's a fruit of salvation, a fruit of righteousness. Hebrews 13, 15, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. So being thankful is the fruit of righteousness. How about pursuing peace with other people? Pursuing peace with other people, that's the fruit of righteousness. James chapter 3, verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits. I mean, you could add all this to the list of fruits of righteousness, unwavering without hypocrisy, and the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so one of the evidences that you're a Christian is that you are diligent to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. You pursue peace with others. All of these things are spiritual fruits that are produced by Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit, whom he sent for this very purpose. Notice it says here, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through all your discipline and self-effort and hard work. Is that what it says? No, the fruit of righteousness, which comes through who? Jesus Christ. He is the source of these spiritual virtues. And Paul's own testimony, I think, provides the best commentary on the fact that our righteousness doesn't come from ourselves, but from Christ. Quickly, just turn over to chapter 3. And this is really the heart and soul of the book of Philippians, is is Paul's testimony in chapter 3, verse 4, where he's talking about the confidence that some have in their flesh. And then he goes on to kind of whips out his spiritual business card, if you will. If, you, if anyone had reason to put confidence in flesh, it was me. More than anybody. Why? Because I was circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. I mean, I was a really good guy. But whatever things were gained to me... Those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I am suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, here it is, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law or keeping the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And so all that to say, in order for these kinds of of fruit to grow and flourish in our lives, we need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not just a bunch of uh, religious activity. Hey, you guys got to start doing all this stuff and being all these things. No, these are things that Christ produces in us. Listen, if you don't see these fruits in your life, it may be because you have never truly come to know Christ. You say, well... Pastor, I know that I, that I know Christ. I'm convinced that I know Christ, but I, I'm not enjoying this fruitful life that Paul's praying for here at this point in my life. Well, it's probably because you're not abiding in Christ. You're not spending time with Christ. You're not connected, closely connected with Christ. Jesus himself said in John 15, 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do what? 
nothing. In other words, you can't produce this kind of fruit on your own. You need to allow the life of Christ to flow through you, even as Paul said later in this first chapter, for to me to live is what? Christ. Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And so these are not things that we achieve, these fruits of righteousness, these are gifts of God's grace. And therefore, guess what? We can't take any credit for them. He gets all the glory and all the praise. And that's what Paul says here. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Listen, when we live this kind of life, filled with all sorts of spiritual fruit, God is glorified. God is honored. Jesus said in John 15, 8, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. I think this is a great reminder that the ultimate goal of our spiritual growth is not so that people can look up to us and go, oh, wow, aren't they spiritual? Aren't they mature? Man, I, you know, it's all about looking up to, you know, people thinking you're this stately oak and just standing there in awe of you like, oh, wow. No, that's not the the goal of our spiritual growth. It should be to bring glory and honor to God, not ourselves. God's saving and sanctifying work in our lives is, as Paul said in Ephesians chapter 1, to the praise of his glory. Three times he said that, just so we wouldn't miss it. It's not about our glory. It's about God's glory. And so who is it? Is, it? is it God working in us? Is it, is it us working? How does this all fit? Well, chapter 2, verse 12, we're going to get here eventually. Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but how much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. I love that parable that Jesus told in Mark chapter 4 of the farmer who went out and cast the seed on his, in his land and he went to bed and he woke up and there was a harvest and he didn't know how it happened. And so he went out there and harvested it and was thankful to God. And so ultimately what it's teaching us that, that God is the one who causes all the growth. But guess what? There would be no growth out there if the farmer hadn't been out there planting the seed. So there is, in our sanctification, there's a partnership, a partnering between us and God, God and us, that we'll learn about as we move through this book. But for now, let me just read for you these words from one commentator that I thought really pulled this together well. He said, our obedience, discipline, are not insignificant or optional. On the contrary, they are the God-intended context of growth. But something else energizes the growth till the fruit is ready for harvest. All is done through Christ to the glory and praise of God. The Father is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Son, and the Son is ceaselessly at work for the glory of the Father. And oh, by the way, we're caught right in the middle of all that. 
Father trying to outdo the Son, the Son trying to outdo the Father, and glorifying one another, if you will. He says, in this setting, the daily task of obedience remains hard, but not fruitless. We are often neglectful, frequently failing, ever inadequate, yet the end is secure for God is at work. Amen? So we can be mess-ups, right? And we all are. But ultimately, God is at work in our lives. Well, do you pray like this? More importantly, do you live like this? Let me just ask you four simple questions based on these four prayer requests as we wrap up this morning. Are you growing in love for God and others? Are you growing in love for God and others? Are you becoming more discerning? Are you becoming more discerning? Are you striving to live a pure and blameless life? And finally, are you seeing an increasing amount of fruit, spiritual fruit, in your life? If you're not, if you can't answer yes to these questions, then you need to start praying that God would make those things true, and you need to start asking other people to pray for you that those things will be true of you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to abound in love for you and each other and for lost people as well. And that you would help us to grow in discernment and establish us in such a way that our lives would be sincere and blameless and provide fertile soil for you to produce fruit in us and through us so that we are ready for the return of Christ to stand before him face to face. And Lord, we just ask that you would use our lives to bring yourself glory and praise. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.